Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back to our program on the line with us is our old buddy, Lori Wallach, the director of Rethink Trade, uh, part of the American Economic Liberties Project. RethinkTrade.org is the website. Her Twitter handle is Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-O-R-I, or Econ Liberties. And Lori, welcome back to the program. Uh, This biggest trade vote you've never heard about. Tell me about this. So we just published a Medium post that Rethink Trades Medium page, and it lays out how buried in what's supposed to be these China competitiveness bills are a set of really crazy trade proposals that could be very damaging on the Senate side, Hmm. while the House version of the same bill actually has some really great stuff, Tom, that you and I probably agree on is actually a new way to do trade that could work for people on the planet. Very interesting. So so lay out these differences and where they originated. So the Senate side bill, let me just step back and say, the, the, the two bills which are right now going to what's called the conference committee, where they're supposed to be reconciled, so this is still fixable, so folks don't get totally depressed, but we got a lot of work to do. So the the the... The Senate side bill and the House bill have the same guts, which is it's money to try and reestablish domestic manufacturing of microchips and to try and invest in advanced research to try and make the U.S. more competitiveness, competitive vis-a-vis China. That's in both bills. Yeah, I heard Bob Menendez talking about that this morning. Exactly. But, you know, it's like that Dr. Doolittle critter, the push me, pull you. Mm-hmm. The body is one way, but the heads are going in opposite directions. So the right. Senate bill attached a trade provision to this perfectly fine bill that basically is reviving the whole corporate rigged trade agenda of, you know, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. Mm. And it includes new tariff cuts. This is supposed to be the bill on on being stronger against China. New tariff cuts for China, 1,400 products, unilaterally. It includes a waiver of the existing China trade penalties. So you get rid of the penalties that were put in place. It includes a section that would basically give big tech this new boondoggle to attack the best regulatory policies against monopolies, et cetera, around the world. So not only are you helping China, you're actually hurting democracies trying to you know, build stronger economies by busting up corporate monopolies. The House version. Uh, hang on just a second. Before you move on to the House version, on the Senate version, where did this kind of language come from? I mean, you know, this has to go through the hands of Chuck Schumer. I, I thought he was a little more enlightened than this. Well, it's a story of enormous intrigue. So the underlying bill was chugging towards a vote. And then some of the Republicans in the Senate said, not so fast. Uh, and a few things we'd like to add to this bill if you'd like to have the price of admission to getting it voted on. And the thing that's kind of depressing is actually some of the Democrats on the Trade Committee were in on this retrograde stuff. They put together this thing they called the Trade Act of 2021. It could have been like called the Trade Act of 1995 because it's like, you know, really crazy NAFTA WTO backwards corporate rigged trade policy. And that got literally slapped on the morning of. So a lot of members of the Senate who are great on trade and have really fought to have this new Biden worker centered trade agenda and voting for something that contains all kinds of things they oppose. So, in fact, five of them sent a letter a couple of weeks after the vote saying, 
Uh, we actually prefer the House version of this bill. Five, we don't of, the, like five of the Democrats in the Senate. Wow, that's great. After they had voted on, after it got glued onto the package. Right. Okay. So, so now to the House bill. So the House bill actually is like something I would fight for as a freestanding bill. It has this amazing fix, Tom, that closes what, what is called the Amazon loophole. That's this bit in trade law now, in customs law, that allows goods to come in. If their package is under $800 a day, it can come in from China around the ban on Uyghur forced labor with no inspection, no taxes, no tariffs directly to you if you bought it online. It skips the entire U.S. customs process. The technical term is de minimis. And every day, $800 worth of stuff can go to any consumer with no inspection, no trade enforcement, forced labor goods, banned endangered species goods. None of it is inspected. And this was Remember, like when you come into the country, say you drive over the border from Canada and you get the little form that says, do you have more than two hundred dollars of stuff you bought in Canada? Mm -hmm. And then you'd say, no, I do not. Or, yes, I do. Here's the list. That is this sort of de minimis the stuff they don't want to bother counting. Well, right. got moved to eight hundred dollars, slipped into a bill by shocker, the express delivery guys at Amazon. And it became this backdoor way to sneak in all these imports, like literally billions of dollars are unaccounted and it's uninspected. So this and is, it, so these are, if you buy a product that is, that costs less than $800, then that product can slip through. That's what you're saying. And you have no idea what you're getting because it's not inspected. So right. the house bill closes the Amazon loophole well. and basically says, oh no, we are gonna fix this. Before someone gets killed by a dangerous product, we're not gonna support Uyghur forced labor. We're also not gonna have maybe 20 billion more dollars of China trade deficit that we don't know about. Right. So it does that. It strengthens labor and environmental standards in one of our main trade programs called the Generalized System of Preference and Tom. It restores the trade adjustments assistance program, which is the program that's been around since Kennedy was president, that gives retraining and extra unemployment insurance to workers who've been hurt by trade agreements, lost their jobs. That program is sunsetting at the end of the year, and the dang Senate bill doesn't bother to extend it. Right. So it's not like it it stops the problem. For, for everyone who's getting ground into the dirt, though, it basically gives them some retaining money and some extra unemployment. And so the House bill renews that. Plus, the House bill has all kinds of new rules about tightening trade cheating laws. It has this great new policy of screening outward investments to make sure that U.S. companies aren't using that to outsource really important supply chains mm -hmm. that are vital to our national security or to dependability on medicines or communications equipment. Ironically, a bunch of this stuff is bipartisan. It was supported originally and written originally by Republican and Democratic senators. It's not in the Senate bill, but it is in the House bill. And so now the two sides have to work it out. And the question is, are those good things in the House bill, which would actually improve our situation generally and also vis-a-vis -vis China, going to be in? And are all those corporate boondoggles that are in the Senate bill going to come out? Yeah. And, and, you know, for people who don't understand this process, when the House passes a trade bill and the Senate passes a trade bill and every word in those two bills is not the same, then they, it goes to what's called reconciliation, which is where a small group of members of the House and a small group of members of the Senate get together and hammer out the differences and come up with one final piece of legislation that they all agree on, and then that gets essentially resubmitted to the House and Senate for a re-vote. I, am I correct about the resubmission and the re-vote? Correct. Yeah, okay, thank you. And, and, then, and then it goes to the president for signature. So the, so the, the, the critical question, I guess uh, you tell me is who's on those who's in that conference committee. So this is 108 people on this conference committee because Whoa. the underlying bills. So like again, think of like, think of like a llama. The body of the llama is one big thing, and a lot of committees have a piece of it, and they're very similar bills. So you have to change some words to make them identical, but they're very similar. But then to the llama's body, you attached a llama head going that way. And that's the Senate's retrograde corporate trade bill. And then on the House side, they attached a, a head going this way. It's a two-headed going the opposite direction as critters. Right. No, I get it. And I so what we need to make sure, basically, is that that Senate stuff, which not only is bad trade policy, but that, that like big tech boondoggle that's buried in there, which would give these tech firms it would literally make your tax dollars, my tax dollars, all of our tax dollars, 
pay a team in the U.S. government whose only job is to work for the big tech companies and try and find, attack and kill all the best anti-monopoly, consumer privacy, gig economy worker protections worldwide to try and keep there being no oversight to these companies so they can have the wild, wild west abuses. Wow. We'd be paying for that. So that's, we're, that's what, not even about trade. Is there is there a uh, you know moving into action here? And we're going to hit a break in just a second, Laurie. But but uh, with regard to action, are there particular members of the House or Senate that we should be calling? And is there particular language we should share with their staff when they answer the phone? I think the most important thing right now to do is to make sure that your members of the House and Senate, given literally, you know, a quarter of the entire Congress is in this official conference committee to put the bills together Mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about it. Call your two senators, call your member of the House. You can very quickly get attached to them, even if you don't know who those people are. Call 202-224-3121, that's the capital, just give your zip code. And then once you're at one, tell them, send me to my senator, send me to my other senator. And you basically, the message is, do not stick us with this job-killing, privacy-crushing, big-tech-loving Senate China bill. We want the House Competes Act. We want the House China bill. Mm -hmm. Do not stick us with the Senate bill. That's the message. I, I get it. I get it. Totally. Lori Wallach, the director of Rethink Trade with the American Economic Liberties Project. RethinkTrade.org is the website. Wallach, Lori, or Econ Liberties on Twitter. Uh, Lori, always great talking with you. Thank you so much for such a clear, clear explanation of this. Thank you. Vielen Dank, Sie sind die Beste. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Have a great day. What did she say? Oh, my. Yeah, what did she say? <laughs> Diane in Hazelcrest, Illinois. Hey, Diane, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thank you so much for what you do. I learned so much from you. Well, thank you. Um, my, my question is, you mentioned earlier how you have plain old Medicare and all you have to do is call them and they handle everything. I'm 65. When I turned 65, I did not take down my Social Security, but I did sign up for Medicare A and B, and I needed a supplemental policy, you know, to in, in order yes, to take I have care one of that too. 20%. Yeah. Okay, my question is, because I don't have Social Security, when I contacted this representative from Humana, she said, well, you'd have to pay twice. You'd have to pay for your supplemental as well as your regular Medicare. And I signed up for this Medicare Advantage plan with Humana. Now, this is scaring the crap out of me. Yeah. So in other words, you called to ask about a supplemental plan and you got talked into going with Medicare Advantage. Yeah. Yeah. You are now out of the system, Diane. And if you don't change within one year, you will you will find it very, very difficult to ever go back. And you may find if you have any health conditions that see when you sign up for regular Medicare and uh, Medicare, uh, what's called a Medigap plan that fills that 20 percent hole. Those are heavily regulated under law. Those Medigap plans can't demand that you call, uh, you know, the insurance company for permission before the, your doctor prescribes a new drug to you or, or suggests you get an MRI or whatever. Uh, it's just straight. I mean, you literally just show up at the doctor's office, show up at the hospital. Everything's taken care of. Nobody ever calls anybody for anything. Um, and and uh, the problem is that the Medi- the Medigap plans, those 20 per- they cover that 20% hole, those plans, yes, you pay twice. You're paying for your Medicare. You can have that taken out of your Social Security, and then you have to pay a, a, you know, an annual or monthly uh, fee for the gap plan. But um, when, if you are, if you haven't not- signed up, uh, uh, forgive me, I had a brain fart there. I got distracted. If you haven't signed up for your Medigap plan, within the first, I believe it's the first year, it might be the first two years, and then you try to go back and get one. Say, say you, know, you signed up for Medicare Advantage when you were 65, and when you're 67, you decide, I want to go back to regular Medicare. At that point, the Medigap plan people can check out your health and say, no, we don't want to cover you. Or, I see. Okay. or, or we're going to give you the equivalent of a Medicare Advantage program. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of holes and exceptions and weirdness and stuff. And so you want to get on the Medigap plan as soon as you can. Um, uh, now, cool. now let me let me just correct my own English here. I, I'm not giving you medical advice or 
uh, insurance advice. I'm not an insurance uh, licensed broker yeah. or whatever. And in your state, right. you know, telling you how, what you should do, I don't know if it's legal or illegal. Um, I, you know, I don't want to take that risk. Uh, but I, I, if you were, if I was you, this is what I would do. And this is my okay. understanding of how the system works. Um, the, I wrote a book about this, if you want. It's called The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Um, I've got mm -hmm. a couple, two really good op-eds uh, specifically about Medicare Advantage that are on the home page. They kind of permanently live on the home page over at HartmanReport.com if you want the details and if you want hot links that will take you off to articles that give you more in-depth information. Okay? Okay. All right. Okay. Good Thank luck, Diane. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a you know, good luck. Good luck. We'll be back. It's the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And uh, picking up your phone calls. Let's see here. Walter in Northridge, California. Hey, Walter, what's on your mind today? Well, a, a couple of things, and a, a huge fan. Thank you very much for what you do and all your staff. Thank you. Uh, it's a, an honor to get to listen. I, a couple of things that make sense to me. I had some significant percent uh, success in talking to people and persuading them to at least re-examine uh, fascist or authoritarian views. About narrowly about the conversation earlier. I think that the facts completely support that tax breaks aren't always paid for. Not a single tax break to the rich, do I believe, has ever returned any positive money to the federal government. It's always had a negative effect on the entire country. You're, you're right. And if I can just add to that, Walter, the, the little, uh, uh, what would you call it, linguistic trick or, or uh, rhetorical trick that Republicans use is they point out that, oh, hey, we had a tax cut in 1984 and in 1985 tax revenues went up. Well, tax revenues go up because the economy is growing. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's yeah. not it's yeah. not because the taxes were cut. Every year tax revenues go, go up. They have since 19, what, 13 or 16 or whatever the year was that we got the modern cool. income tax. So back to you, Walter. Well, I, and I completely agree. And to point out that rich never return money, but the tax breaks or tax benefits to the poor have always produced a positive return. I used to be on farmers' market boards, and we would study what happened with monies we gave to people coming to the farmers' market who were, who were poor. And I think people like Professor Wolf would support that if you put a dollar in a poor, in any community, and I blacks in the South used to do this, they used to buy with $2 bills on some rare occasions to have the economy, the people who got the money realized that blacks had it and that it influenced it. A dollar spent by a person in the community becomes a, something like a buck seventy-five very shortly. That is, it doesn't disappear and go it's to- It's called the, the circulation of money. And when when yes. you, if you give a dollar to a per, poor person, they will spend it, and it becomes more than a dollar. Give a dollar to a rich yeah. person, they put it in their money bin. And if you spend your money at, at Costco, 93 cents out of that dollar goes to people in Arkansas 
not claustrophobic, Walmart. or yeah. Walmart, those yeah. sleazy places. Uh, and so, uh, and as you point out, the seven to one return for educating people was remarkable. Not only did the government get richer, but all of those families got richer. All of their children, I'm one of them, went to college at a very fair rate. As you point out, you didn't have to work uh, or you didn't have to work hard. I I have found in talking to people who are on the other side of the equation that if I build in early to it to remind them that it isn't socialist things, it's democratic socialism. I sometimes mention Keynes, I sometimes mention Friedman, but I do always mention that it was born and invented in the United States of America. We evolved, developed democratic socialism. At the end of the war, we controlled what every Western European government, what the Japanese were, what every land we dominated their government. They're all democratic socialists. In 1980, our standard of living was 30 percent higher than the second highest in the world. We're now something like 50th. We're certainly lower than 37. Yeah, 40 years of Reaganomics has just gutted America. Walter, excellent points. Excellent points all. This is just a rotten health care system. It's part of my work history. I had a job helping to administer the biggest hospital in the United States in my youth, and I was very active in politics in my youth, very active in the Ted Kennedy campaign, and a very substantial supporter of the Democrats need to raise their voices. You played once or twice Ted Kennedy's uh, clip of, uh, will the greed never stop? I mean, talking to these sleazy right-wing authoritarian pigs ought to be done. Well, Walter, let me give you a gift as we as we wrap up this uh, brief conversation. Here you go. $240 billion in tax breaks for corporations, $36 billion in tax breaks for small businesses, increase in productivity, 42% over the last 10 years. But do you think there's any increase in the minimum wage? No. What is the price? We ask the other side. What is the price that you want from these working men and women? What cost? How much more do we have to give to the private sector and the business? How many billion dollars more are you asking, are you requiring? When does the greed stop? And, and I'm with you, Walter. That's what we need from our Democratic politicians today. Thank you so much for the call. Sammy in Longview, Washington. Hey, Sammy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. This is more of a tale of woe than anything else. You know, for the last few years, we haven't had to pay any of the student uh, loans because of the COVID. It's been put, all the federal payments been put on hold. I had a son that went to school several years ago at the UAW here in Washington, and we took out $60,000 worth of Parent PLUS loans. And, well, it was more than that, but that's what we owed. And it was the writing was on the wall. They were supposed to start making payments again here in April, May, but then they pushed it back to August. Uh, we've never taken any money out of our house. We've lived here for years and years and years. It was either take the money out of the house or out of retirement. Retirement's not a good idea. So we said, okay, fine. The interest rates are low. The writing's on the wall. The interest rates are going to start going up. Where are you going with all this, Sammy? We took $60,000 out of the house and paid off our student, my kids' student plus loans. And today I'm watching Joe Biden on TV going, well, we're going to help people that got student loans. Yeah. Yeah, it's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. But that, yeah, but that doesn't mean that we should continue to kneecap the country. Yeah, you know, I go, gosh, is there any way to get, I'm 59 years old. I'd sure like to get a little chunk of that 60 grand back yeah. in my pocket. Yeah, that's the problem. And, and, and your, your point is the one that, that, you know, Romney and these other Republicans are making is, hey, it's not fair. You've got people who paid off their loans. They worked hard. Um, they, they refinanced their houses, whatever, they paid off their student loans, and now you're going to, you know, give essentially a free pass to other people who have debt. And yeah, yeah, some, yeah. sometimes when you've got a system that is corrupt, which is what we have, and we've had for about 30, 35 years here, uh, you can thank Mr. Reagan for this. Um, when you have a system right. that is corrupt and it does a lot of harms in society, and you go in and you try to right those harms, you try to right those wrongs, 
Um, some people end up getting disproportionate benefits. Some people who probably deserve those benefits don't get those benefits. It's not fair to everybody because the system is corrupt and cleaning it up is, is you know, kind of reverse engineering the corruption. But you have to do the best you can do. You can't just say, oh, yeah, the system sucks. Let's keep it. Yeah, I, I had to take the loans out at when it was 2.6 because right now it's 5. So I would have been yeah. paying a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just end up by saying I was born in Helsinki, Finland. I've lived here since I was a kid. And, boy, I tell you, back when our kids were going to college, my cousins, we talk on the phone. And, boy, I tell you, they could really throw egg on my face by, oh, yeah, my kid's going to school for nothing. How much is your kid costing you? Right, right. Well, in fact, in, in I'm not sure about Finland. In Denmark, they pay you $200 a month to go to college. You know, I mean, oh, I'm not sure about that. I, I do remember when our kids were really young, I was sending my kid to YMCA camp for like six, $700 a week, mm -hmm. and he was sending his, both of his boys to summer camp for twelve fifty a week. That's dollars and cents. $12.50? <laughs> yeah. Oh, in Finland? Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, they've got a, they've, it's a social welfare, they've got a, a strong social safety network. You, you call it a social welfare country or some right. democratic but, you know, The truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, we, when you compare your tax, and I'm getting off a tangent here, but our, our income tax for your work, for work, work mm -hmm. tax or, or is, is about the same. But where they pay the big money is consumption. You know, their gas is expensive, right, the bad tax. food is expensive. Yeah, yeah it's, it's consumption tax. So, anyway, yeah. I love your program. Just okay. thought I'd throw that at you. Thanks a lot, Sammy. Bye. Pam in Sutherland, Oregon. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind? Um, yeah, earlier a lady called in about um, women over 40 having babies, babies or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about why aren't women in the street? You know, marching. Yeah, let, let me just reset that, if I may, Pam, for people who just tuned okay. in. Um, Thank the, you. the point I made was that a couple of days ago, a woman called into the program and said she was in her 40s, and if she got pregnant or if she was raped and got pregnant, that she would be at a much higher risk of death or injury from a pregnancy than somebody in their 20s. And, and she said, therefore, for me, abortion is health care because she doesn't want to have any more children. And I, I thought that was such an important point. Um, I, you know, I, I made the comment, why aren't women in the streets? Women in their 40s and 50s who are still fertile and, and at high risk for pregnancy. And another woman called up and said, I'm one of those women. I had a baby when I was 41 years old. And how essentially, how dare you let younger women think that they can't have babies when they get older? And I was like, well, OK, I don't know about this stuff. But uh, other than the statistics, which is that you're more likely to die when you're older than when you're younger, although it's not massively larger. But OK, now to you, Pam. What do you want to say about it? Oh, well, and also, like, 10-year-old little girls probably don't need to be pregnant either. It's probably pretty yeah. detrimental to them also. What I want to actually talk about, too, is rapists. Why aren't men in the street, I don't know, bitching about rapists? Yeah. Men rape. Men yeah. rape. I don't think women rape. I don't know. Maybe maybe there are a few out there that do, but the majority of rapes occur by men. Yeah. Why aren't other men in the streets calling your brother out? Yeah, that's a good point, Pam. And and this all goes back to the the story I was telling. You know what provoked this whole conversation was this state legislator in Ohio who yesterday got up and gave a speech about even when young girls get raped and get pregnant. Uh, even if it's incest and, you know, they're 10 years old. I mean, she didn't specify an age, but she said no matter how young they are, it's a great gift. It's a great opportunity. And I, I think, no, it could be a, it could be a curse. And I, yeah, that, I, yeah, that's yeah. the kind of gift I don't need. Yeah, there you, you go. Know, thankfully, I'm 70 years old and don't have to worry about it. Unfortunately, yeah. I have a 20-year-old granddaughter who does. Yeah, there you and go. also, unfortunately, her parents are as ignorant as the 41-year-old woman calling in saying, how dare you talk about a high-risk pregnancy? Well, I don't think she was ignorant. I think she just, she had her experience and, and uh, you know, it was meaningful to her. And All right, Pam, thank you. I got to move along here. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. Thank you for everything you do. Um, I, I so appreciated reading your books. And I was thinking when um, Elon Musk bought Twitter, what it means for us in a democracy and in an economy because i was thinking the richest person in the world bezos um, owns amazon a kind of a surveillance platform now elon musk the second richest person in the world owns twitter right. and by the way bezos also owns the washington post yes and then facebook third richest person fifth and sixth richest larry page out of east lansing and sergey Bernay. 
uh, fourth and ninth, Microsoft, tenth richest, Bloomberg. So I was thinking, have we really thought exactly what our answer to this is? Or do we even know the threat? That's the closest we came to losing our democracy. People don't really yeah. talk about that. It's with what happened with Standard Oil. So the question is, what is the answer? And I think the answer has been given by Senator Warren. Very few senators are joining her. Ro Khanna isn't, for example. There's only 18 senators who support a weak, milk toast version of something that won't do it. The answer, I think, is in the proposal Warren has that she's not messaging correctly. And the messaging should be that we need utilities for democracy. Mm. And the Digital Platforms Project at the Harvard um, Shorenstein Center has put out a report. Uh, the, the head of that, Gauche, was at Facebook for many years in compliance. Joshua Simmons came out of the U.K. Labor Party. They jointly wrote this, Utilities for Democracy. And the, and the point that they make is Facebook is a monopoly and Google is a monopoly. And they apply the standard test. Right. I mean, so, so this is like going back. Forgive the interruption, Patrick, but I see a break coming at me. Um, this is like going back to when AT&T basically owned the marketplace and saying, OK, if somebody is going to act, act as a monopoly, uh, you, we have two choices. We can either break them up, as we ultimately did with AT&T in the 70s, or we can heavily regulate them, which is what we did with AT&T from the 1920s right up until the 1970s. And, and, and with Standard Oil, the oil trust, with the railroads, and let's get the history straight, with J.P. Morgan, it was with not banking. breaking them up that corrected it. It was the common carrier regulation scheme. And then you get everything you need. Facebook looks the same. The Google search engine looks the same. But they can't buy up Whole Foods. They can't monopolize small business. They can't ruin the economy. They can't take away our democracy. Excellent point, Patrick. Excellent point. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see you have Ghosh on the program or Joshua Simmons. Yeah, they're good guys. Columbia I, Journalism Review did a great thing on this, and they pulled together all the articles that support their approach. And there's Congressional Research Service reports to Congress that goes through this saying, we live in a great. digital company town. Good, we that's can't... great. Patrick, thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. So uh, economic news here. Holy moly, more inflation and shortages coming from the Shanghai shutdowns. And it's, it's not just that, but that's a big piece of it. The, the U.S. economy shrank 1.4% annually during the first three months of this year. We just got the numbers, January, February, March. You know, this is April, and it takes a while to digest the numbers, and they just came out this morning. And uh, this is from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And you've got the Fed saying, we need to slow down the economy. And so they tweak interest rates, and now suddenly the economy has slowed down a whole pile. We were growing, last year, all of 2021, we grew at 5.7% total throughout the year. First three months of this year, we're down 1.4%. At the same time that the Fed, that you know, our, our good Republican Fed chair and former banker, uh, Mr. Jerome Powell, is saying, yeah, we're going to raise interest rates even more. I'm really concerned about this. I think that what we are looking at is a major recession. 
and I think it's not going to be limited to the United States. China is experiencing a wave of COVID now with the, with the uh, Omicron variant sweeping that country. It's highly contagious. It looks like you know, they're on the verge of shutting down Beijing, but they've had Shanghai shut down for quite a while now. And you know, this is creating a crisis. In fact, this is, uh, there's a great piece about this in the Washington Post today. Thousands of air fryers are stuck in factories, warehouses, and ports in central China, where shutdowns have stalled millions of dollars worth of inventory for the Yeti Warehouse, a family-run business in Los Angeles. And they kind of use this company as the, as the hook to, you know, to take you through the story. Bobby DeVere, who is the company's president, he says, things are getting crazy again. Everything's halted. There are closures this very minute that are adding to the supply chain nightmare we've been experiencing for two years. This will cause more inflation. In fact, this particular company that they're talking about, uh, Yeti Houseware, has already raised their prices across the board 5%. Excuse me, 10% in January. They raised all of their prices. They, they sell in the United States products made in China, air fryers, electric pressure cookers, bread makers, stuff like that. 10% increase in prices. Because the price of plastic has gone up 5%. The cost of transportation is costing more. They're having to move goods from Shanghai to ports in Ningbo, three hours away, to try and get them on a boat. This is why used car prices are up 35%, because the, the, the parts to make cars are, are not making it. The shipping time, this is amazing. The shipping time for toys from China to U.S. stores typically is 21 days. It's now 159 days. This, so I am predicting, you know, you often hear on this program, and not, I'm not always right, but more often than not, I am, I think. And, and you'll hear me talk about, look out, this is coming. Well, look out, this is coming. We're talking recession and inflation. We've had that once before during my lifetime, and that was in the 1970s. It was called stagflation. Jerry Ford was president. He came up with a campaign called Whip Inflation Now. We had these win buttons. And then Jimmy Carter inherited it. Neither one of them made it through, uh, you know, both of them only had, a, was, they were both single-term presidents because of the stagflation, the, the stagnant economy with inflation. It's a double whammy. And the Fed is going to make this worse. And Republicans are going to be celebrating, and it's going to help them tremendously at the polls. Now, the basic, the core economy here in the United States is not collapsing or hurting. Actually, we saw during these first three months a 2.7% increase in consumption and a 9% increase in annual sales. But the, the, the trade deficit has gone up at the slower pace of inventory accumulation. Um, that has combined to, to create this 1.4% uh, drop in GDP. So get ready. It's going to get wild out there. Regina in Irving, California. Hey, Regina, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, I just wanted to tap on to that conversation you had with that woman calling in about um, she, you know, she delivered her child over 40. Well, I had the same situation, and it was extremely dangerous. It definitely is dangerous. Um, and not only that, but the Down syndrome factors, it's like one in 100. Mm -hmm. That's also a factor, which would also be really detrimental for children. And so not only that, not all women are actually healthy as you get older and, then, you know, peaking into that 40 years of age. Fortunately, I was. But um, you've got to make sure to have proper health care. And that's not really available to a lot of people, especially if you're in a state where it's just it's just not there. Right. So, so this um, is a situation, again, where abortion is health care for older women. Exactly. I mean, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I just wanted to bring up that point. I appreciate it. Thank Th you so thank much. Thank you, Regina. Yeah, great talking to okay, you. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Since the first Starbucks union campaign succeeded in Buffalo back in December of last year, 2021, more than 110 Starbucks stores in 27 states have filed union petitions for elections. Uh, that's more than 2,000 workers from Miami-Dade to Seattle. 
and uh, people are suing for, well, they want the union for living wage, access to benefits, adequate staffing, consistent scheduling, improved health and safety conditions. Well, one of the people who's been at the middle of all of this, Daisy Pitkin is with us, an organizer for over 20 years, currently working the Starbucks campaign with SEIU, Workers United in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And also, she's got a new book out. It's absolutely fascinating. On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Daisy Pitkin is with us. D-A-I-S-Y-P-I-T-K-I-N is her Twitter handle, or work at Workers United. Daisy, welcome to the program. Oh, and daisypitkin.net is, is your website. Welcome to the program. Great book. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with it. Tell me about this Starbucks campaign. What, how did it... You know, Starbucks has uh, been fighting unionization forever. Uh, what broke through? You know, I think um, you, as you kind of your lead into this segment said that, you know, you introduced me as someone who's kind of in the middle of the campaign, which is p part of the reason the campaign is working is because that's not really true. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to clarify and say I work on the campaign. I'm a staff organizer for Workers United. I've been a union organizer for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really I feel really honored to be able to support the campaign that's happening right now. And what's really in the middle of the campaign is that workers at Starbucks who call themselves partners, right? Because the company calls them partners and they've kind of taken ownership of that term saying, you know, you want us to be partners, we're gonna be full partners. We wanna see you at the negotiating table, right? right. But the middle of the campaign are these partners organizing themselves and through the process of organizing their stores, they learn how to, they learn the skills that they need to organize. And then they teach other partners in stores adjacent to theirs or near theirs or on the other side of the city or even in other cities, how to organize their stores. So it's Starbucks workers organizing themselves and each other. And that is what is really at the root of this kind of groundswell of momentum that we're seeing on the campaign that's really incredible and inspiring. Yeah, and, and well, you have, you have been on that line, not necessarily in the middle of the Starbucks one, but in, in the middle of the movement and, uh, or part of the movement. I'm, I'm uh, that's grateful true. for yeah. your perspective. Um, for many years, I mean, you know, unionization was a goal throughout the last half of the 18th century uh, or the 1800s. Uh, it became a reality uh, in the 1930s. I think it was 1935, the Wagner Act, the, the National Labor Relations Act was passed, and you know, which legalized unions. Prior to that, uh, employers would routinely sick police on union organizers and, and kill people. I mean, you know, the Ludlow massacre and other things like that. And, and then we had this period of time from the 1930s up until the 1980s when, you know, everybody wanted to be in a union. I, my dad was in the machinist union. Uh, you know, he, he worked in a tool and die shop. Um, uh, all three of my brothers are, are, were union members. Um, I w I'm a union member. Um, and, and then, you know, with Reagan, it... The, the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan succeeded and, and mostly kind of using like the corruption of a couple of union guys like, you know, Jimmy Hoffa succeeded in, in planting this myth of the union boss who is just like it's corrupt that he's taking your money and he's going to take a piece of your paycheck. Rah, rah, rah. And that, you know, the, the middle class America really bought into that in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. That has faded out that that you know when when republicans talk about union bosses now it doesn't it doesn't resonate like it used to can you speak to how that might be a generational issue or is that a uh, uh you know a function of the economy issue or is that hey we tried this for 40 years reaganomics and realized now that it was stupid or you know what what has br brought about this change in your opinion in your experience there's so much in that question that I find really interesting and important. Um, part of it that you described this kind of bell curve of union density that started um, really before, I would say, the NLRA was passed in 1935. Um, the reason the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, came into being in the mid-30s was because there was so much widespread militant collective action happening that employers actually decided that they wanted to legislate a way for people to form unions without striking. Mm. 
because there were so many strikes happening nationally. The National Labor Relations Act went into effect to actually quell labor activity. And that's what it did. But it also created a conduit through which workers could easily join unions. And they did in droves, right? And union density sort of skyrocketed and then leveled off and started declining around the time, exactly as you say, that Ronald Reagan broke the PATCO strike and emboldened then um, corporations and industries that were traditionally union to start trying to break unions in their own industries. And they did, and they fought uh, fiercely. And through their fights against the unions that um, represented workers in industries that were traditionally union, they started carving out loopholes in labor law. And the NLRA, you know, which suffered a big blow just 12 years after it was passed, when Taft-Hartley was passed mm-hmm. in 1957 and stripped away you know, many, many of the rights that were passed over Harry Truman's veto, by the way. But then, you know, starting in the 1970s, when employers started viciously attacking unions and trying to break their backs, the NLRA, what was left of it, sort of died a death by a thousand cuts. And what we have now is a labor law that is very broken and loopholed. And what we also have is a massive industry of union avoidance, right? Like a multi-million dollar industry full of firms like Littler Mendelssohn, which Starbucks has just hired, where they pay lawyers about $500 an hour to try to drive the company through these wide open loopholes in labor law. So it's very difficult to organize unions in this moment. And in my book, I sort of write about that bell curve of unionism and that the sort of eerie fact that the right to organize right now is almost at the same place that it was before the National Labor Relations Act was passed (laughs) and that what it's going to take to force companies to come to the table and negotiate with workers is mass collective action, which is what it took before the NLRA was passed in the first place. And then you asked at the end of your question sort of um, what what has changed? Um, I think, one, people are realizing that that's true, that we have to take collective action together. There's no way at this point to sort of legislate an answer to the, to the issues that working people are facing, that they have to get together and fight for themselves. And we're at a point where a lot of people are realizing that, not just in sort of the service sector, but in higher ed, Um, There are miners who've been on the longest strike in Alabama history right now, meatpacking workers, um, Amazon distribution center workers, right? Sector after sector, region after region in the country, workers are coming together in a way that they haven't in a very long time. I think it started really, this like momentum started with the red state teacher strikes that predated the pandemic, but then the pandemic and the great resignation have brought into sharp focus some of the forces at play um, that are really working against young people and working people, number one. And then number two, the great resignation gives workers sort of inherently a little bit more power. Um, and, And we're seeing kind of all of those forces come into play right now in this explosive moment. And a fine thing it is. Daisy Pitkin is the author. The book is On the Line, a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union. DaisyPitkin.net is the website. You can tweet Daisy at Daisy Pitkin. Daisy, thanks so much for dropping by today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great talking talking with you. you. Thank you. And good luck with the book. It's, uh, it's, It's brilliant. We'll be right back. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Persist by Elizabeth Warren. And this is from the first chapter. I'm starting on page 
13. It's kind of the end of the introduction, which is titled, You Don't Get What You Don't Fight For. And the headline there, the subhead is, What Do You Bring to a Knife Fight? Elizabeth Warren writes, Nothing we do will be easy. No one with power will give it up readily. Our battles will be hard. Sometimes we'll find ourselves in a knife fight and we'll need our sharpest weapons. But more than anything, the toughest fights will demand that we bring our whole selves. We must bring energy and determination. We must bring clarity of purpose and a richer understanding of our common goals. We must bring a deep down commitment that will sustain us even when the fight looks impossibly hard. This book is not a campaign memoir. It's not a rehash of big public events. It's a book about the fight that lies ahead. It's about the plans we need, no surprise there. And it's about much more than plans. It's about the passion and commitment that underlie those plans and the human connection that will keep us in this fight until we see real change. I write knowing with absolute certainty that if we fail to make major changes, we will plunge our nation and our planet into an abyss from which we cannot escape. I also write with a deep thrum of optimism that we are in a moment when extraordinary changes are possible. Much is broken in this country. More than 74 million Americans voted to return Donald Trump to the White House, even as he left our government, our reputation, and even our faith in each other, torn and ragged. In January 2021, his followers stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop the peaceful transition of power that has been a hallmark of our nation from its creation. But even in the darkest hours, I have never stopped believing in the strength of our democracy. Even when hatred has flared and hissed, I have never stopped believing in our capacity to create a better country based on the values we share. I believe right down to my toes that we can build a nation that expands opportunities, a nation that works, not just for the rich and powerful, but for everyone. As I lay sleepless under the covers on election night, I thought about why the fight for change matters so much to me. Why do federal laws and policies wake me up in the morning and keep me up at night? Why do I wade into one battle after another? Why do I get back up after a god-awful loss, ready to charge ahead again? Because for me, like the thousands of people I met during my campaign for president, this fight is personal. I bring the pieces of who I am to every battle. I'm a mother and a teacher. I'm a planner, a fighter, and a learner. And, Elizabeth Warren writes, I'm a woman. Together, these pieces furnish the foundation for everything I do. They are the lenses through which I see much of this world. They drive me to fight for millions of other people. They make me strong. The stories in this book come straight from my heart to yours. I share them in the hope that they will give spark to the battles you wage and keep you grounded in the righteous fights. And then we go to chapter one. This is where the book kind of formally starts, titled A Mother. I first walked into a classroom as a bona fide teacher in September 1970, and by January or so, I was settling in. The butterflies I'd felt in the first few weeks were gone. I'd figured out lesson plans, figured out the supply closet, figured out parent conferences, the drop-offs and the pickups, and figured out the pecking order in the all-important teacher's coffee room. I was a first-year teacher at Riverdale Elementary School in Riverdale, New Jersey. I loved these children, and I loved this work. Finally, here I was, 21 years old, doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. I grew up in Oklahoma, the baby girl in a family of boys. Like every other girl I knew, I was sure I would go to high school, learn to drive a car, get married, and have kids. I knew the plan. Living that plan was what it meant to grow up. But I had one more part to my plan, to teach school. Since second grade, I'd wanted to be a teacher. When my teacher, Mrs. Lee, had put me in charge of extra reading practice with a handful of second graders, I was hooked. There would be no stopping me. For years, I lined up my dollies, Terry Lee, Susie, Sammy, T. 
Tammy, Nursey, Lady, the Storybook Dolls, and all the rest, and taught school for hours and hours. Of course, Sammy was always the bad boy, and the Storybook Dolls were empty-headed, but I wasn't discouraged. I kept right on teaching. The road had been bumpy. My mother didn't want me to go to work. Just marry a man who's a good provider, she said. We didn't have money for college. College is for other people, she said. I found out a way to go to college anyway, but I got married at 19 and dropped out. I always knew you would, she said. Found a commuter college I could afford, but my husband got transferred before I could graduate. The book Persist by Elizabeth Warren. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? I wanted to be a little bit flippant on your show today, if I might. You may. I will not take. <laughs> I will not take too many liberties, but I'm astounded at the greatest story that's never told right now, because I'm in the midst of all types of things. I mean, if you take African Americans and Black people out of Fox News's uh, programming, they have no programs. I mean, their entire diet is a vilification of, of, of black people and so forth. And so, I, I, and you know, we have the first black female judge and all of this stuff in the Supreme Court. But what I'm not getting is that the story to me that is most monumental about African Americans is that the richest man in the world apparently is an African American and he just bought Twitter. His name's Elon Musk. Yeah, my, although he grew up under apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> well, but no, but he's African American. Yeah, well, literally. Talking yeah. about it. Yes, literally. He he is an African who became an American. You're absolutely right. I'm called an African American. I've never been to Africa, though. I'd love to go and probably stay. Yeah. Uh, but here's a guy that, that he's truly man. He's walked the earth there. Yeah. He's an African American, yeah. and nobody's talking about it. Now I'm being flippant. Let me get serious for a minute, Tom. Go for it. The, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that these labels that are assigned to us in my life, I've been called Afro-American. I've never been able to figure out how I, was a, how I became a hairstyle, black, Negro, colored, and now African-American. And basically what I'm getting at, Tom, and here's the sobering and sad part of this, it's a way to try. It's, 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 it's this society trying to politely say the same word and know what word I'm talking about. Yeah, which is, uh, without using that word, which is we are right. going to marginalize you and we're going to demonize you. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the, now, uh, that's now, the essential here's thing. The guy, yeah, here's the guy that's African-American and nobody will say it. Yeah. The, what I was going to tell you is the, there's a, a study out of uh, Pennsylvania suggesting that uh, the Hispanic vote is shifting heavily toward the Republicans. And one of the main reasons is that there's the, the messaging that is happening, not just on Spanish language radio, but it, that is directed at the Hispanic vote is the Democrats like black people better than you. Basically, yeah. and you got uh, it. And it's like it, I remember, you know, in the '70s, Nixon was like, "Oh yeah, women are going to take your job," and you know, there's been black people want to take it. It's it's like everything repeats. It's like it's insane. Kenyatta, I got to run, but thank you for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. Irene in Clovis, California. Hey, Irene, what's on your mind? Hi, I was reading the Guardian news today, and uh, under the rights for people. They have a story about the Ukrainian women that are being raped in the streets by the soldiers who are declaring them prostitutes. And uh, now Planned Parenthood International has sending them the morning after pills and sending contraceptive items. These women, as we know, are moving in with their children as well to Poland. And Poland has got the same restrictive laws as Texas. That's so right. So they're running into Abortion's all sorts illegal of problems. In Poland. Yeah. Yes, so it's you know it's, it's an American problem, but it seems to be that the far right organizations around the world seem to have it done for us women. Well, in Poland, it's you know it's a very very Catholic country, and yes. uh, mm -hmm. you know it's abortion has been outlawed there for quite a, quite a while. So, uh, I know. but but Planned Parenthood, I didn't realize that that Planned Parenthood is is helping out these women who've been raped by the Russian well, soldiers. I just read it this morning. Yeah. On the, you, you can pull it up and see it yourself. Okay. I'll, I'll have to do that. Yeah. Thank you, Irene. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the call. You're welcome. Uh, Brian in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Brian, we got about a half a minute here. You got a quick point you want to make? 
Uh, okay, I don't know if I can get it through. <laughs> okay, I'll do it as fast as I can. Okay, some scientists or biologists once said that uh, if you get somebody in a bathtub and increase the temperature of the water one degree every uh, ten minutes, uh, that that person will not know when to get out when they're burning. I happen to believe that this country has been in that bathtub for around the last forty years, and the majority of U.S. citizens are accepting something gradually have been that they would never have accepted. That happened immediately, namely fascism. And I'm, I like to I'm, I'm with you, Brian. I'm going to leave you right there, but uh, I agree. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. We'll hang out, and we can talk about anything you want. So uh, have a great afternoon. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We will see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.